Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of The Photo Show. Uh, so, Kai, you and I were at a book signing last night for Thomas Roma, Plato's Dogs, at Powerhouse Books. Yeah, I know our listeners probably imagine that uh, Michael and I spend uh, most <laughs> evenings in the photo show bunker uh, planning out future episodes, but actually we, we don't see each other that often in person, and we've seen each other three times this week. You know, I mean, we... We recorded an episode on Friday with the photographer Jeff Mermelstein. Yeah, that was fun. Then on Saturday, we met up with Giancarlo T. Roma in his basement, in <laughs> uh, an actual bunker basement, and recorded <laughs> uh, the new theme song, which you'll be hearing soon. Yes. And then we saw each other last night at the book signing. So it's like uh, one, two, three. I know. I know. I, you know. I think it's time we take a break, Kai. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which, is this going to be the last episode we release this year, or is there one more we're going to sneak in? Um, so I'm going to attempt uh, to get one out for New Year's, but that's kind of next year. Yeah, yeah. sure, that counts. Yeah, this could be the uh, the last episode of 2016. Exactly. Uh, do you have any photo goals for 2017? Oh, photo goals. Yes, photograph more. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's... What about, yeah, for you digital photographers, Michael, how do you go through and look and see like how many exposures you made over the course of the year? How do you assess uh, how the year was? Yeah, that's basically it. You um you know, you open up Lightroom and you can see well the way I organize things is by month of the year and by um, subject matter. So I have different Lightroom catalogs for different projects and then everything's broken down by the month. Uh, and yeah, that's exactly what I do. I can go through and see how many uh, how many photos I made for each month of the year. At my end of the year roll count, you know, and that, which can be deceiving because uh, some of those are thirty five millimeter, thirty six exposure rolls. Some are one twenty, but they're six by nine with only eight exposures, that's and some right. are one twenty uh, two and a quarter with twelve exposures. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's just a relative number. But. Yeah, no, I and and you know when I was um, only shooting six by nine, I, I had a very good idea what that meant, and I can look at the uh, all the boxes uh, on my bookcase and see how many rolls I shot every year, and uh, I can uh, sort of plot that against uh, when my children were born and <laughs> all those things. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there, there are two important events that are, oh my God, my voice just broke. I think I'm hitting puberty. <clears throat> uh, there are two events on Friday that I should mention. One is that the uh, Thomas Roma exhibition at Stephen Kasher closes on Friday. So if you are in Manhattan and have not seen it yet, you should get over there uh, before it closes. That's the Plato's Dogs trilogy. And of course, it's great to go see the Plato's Dogs photographs, but there's also uh, photographs from the waters of our time, which everyone's only seen as these tiny little, little reproductions in the book. So it's amazing to see the 11 by 14 prints of those. Right. Uh, and then the higher ground photographs, which a lot of people haven't been able to see in person as well. And then the other Friday event, which is a little further south uh, <laughs> than uh, Chelsea, is the in two, Tampa, Florida. The two great Christmas destinations, New York City and Tampa. <laughs> exactly. So I will be in Tampa, Florida coming in on Thursday, but uh, on Friday uh, at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts, I'm giving an artist talk and uh, presenting my book about face picturing Tampa to a local Tampa crowd and hopefully selling books. So if uh, you are in the Tampa area and listening to this or know anyone in the area or within a six-hour drive of Tampa, please come. <laughs> now, I also want to do a special shout-out today because today is uh, Inbal Abergil's 40th birthday, and oh, she was a guest. Oh, happy birthday. On... Yeah, so happy birthday, Inbal. <laughs> wow, is that going to be a new segment on the show? And I don't the know, birthday list. Woo! If you if you turn forty, maybe yeah. It's oh, like okay. She hits. It's like worth a, a special call out, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Especially since we're releasing it on her birthday. Yeah. So uh, this is an unusual episode for us in that we're we're not speaking directly to uh, a photographer or a photo curator necessarily, but we went to this uh, amazing place. It's one of the, one of these things about New York City that there you can stumble upon and discover that there's. Uh, 
uh, an institution that's been around for you know 125 years and you <laughs> hadn't heard anything about it. And that is pen and brush for us, for myself at least. And we had an amazing conversation with them and saw their new place. We sp- There was a three-person uh, show up with Trisha Wright, Jihee Kang, and Donna Festa. But we sat down with Trisha Wright and spoke to her. And her work is informed by photography. Uh, her husband's a photographer and there's a photographic element in her work. But um, part of the reason we wanted to speak with them is they're, they've got this amazing new space and they they want photographers to apply to have exhibitions there. And uh, that that's partially why we're having this great conversation with them. Yeah, so Trisha Wright's a painter, but she uses lens-based concepts in her work. And uh, we talk about that in the show. But we were also talking to Janice Sands, the executive director, and Dawn Delicott, the associate executive director. And so we get a, a, also a great history of Pen and Brush, which was founded in 1893 and had a, a, also an interesting connection to the suffrage movement. Uh, so it's, it's really a, a, a fascinating conversation, both historically and uh, about painting and photography. Yeah, exactly. Um, well... Let's talk about the new theme song a little bit, shall we? Sure. Yeah, so we we asked Giancarlo T. Roma, who has been a guest on the show. It's not his birthday. And uh, we said, you know, we need a, a new theme song. Would you try out a couple of ideas? And he recorded some loops on guitar uh, playing uh, in his uh, studio and sent them along to us. And we liked uh, immediately liked a couple of them. So when we sat down with him on Saturday, basically uh, he taught me one of the parts so I could play uh, the bass line on his guitar. And uh, we improvised a couple of things and wound up with three new segments, right? Yeah, no, it was really great. And I I posted a video of the two of you playing, which was a a lot of fun to watch and record. Uh, And so, yeah, we have a new intro, a new outro. And then, you know, from from the outro, we have a a transition piece. So if we ever have a transition, we'll use it. (laughs) Yeah, I, I'm going to call it the awkward moment transition <laughs> music. So if you ever hear it kick in, that means uh, right. that that I probably said something which Michael couldn't edit around, and so instead it's just gonna it's gonna flow through in the background. Yeah, you'll just hear some music playing. That's yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. oh, what happened there? Oh, interesting. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, Everyone, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, uh, Happy Kwanzaa, and and everything else. And Happy New Year. And Happy New Year. So enjoy the show. We'll talk soon. everyone to be as monotone as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Very serious. Yeah. Like when you call your credit card yeah. company, you talk in that robotic That's voice. Right. Like, That's right. <laughs> Is there anything else I can do for you today? Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Hi. All right. So we are in this uh, amazing space at Pen and Brush in New York City. Uh, and we are with uh, Dawn Delicott. And do you want to say hi? Yes, hello. <laughs> so we'll get to know everyone's voice a little bit. And uh, Janice Sands. Hi. And we are with uh, an artist currently in a show uh, right here right now, uh, Trisha Wright. Hello. All right. So I think we can all know Trisha's voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the British accent will yes. help for distinguishing unless we all start to slip into one. <laughs> that wouldn't be insulting at all. <laughs> no, no. Mm. Uh, so Trisha, the... Um, oh, you know what? Actually, let me ask... Um, Janice and, and Dawn. So what was the um, sort of the impetus for this show that's up right now? Tell us a little bit about it. My answer, which may be different from Dawn's, is that we wanted to be sure that we were offering artists who had been vetted by our curators as many opportunities as possible. And we looked at those artists in our pool who fit that and got them together and those who were able and had new work from the last time they showed here were invited to participate in the current show. And it turned out wonderfully. Hmm. Diversity uh, in materials and in approach and I think has made a very strong showing. 
Yes, and just to add to that, uh, with Trisha, we've stayed in dialogue with her and her current studio practices. She showed with us in our inaugural show and was selected by the curator Rick Kinsell of the Vilcek Foundation. And over this period, we've uh, you know built a relationship of trying to expose her to additional opportunities beyond her showing with us um, last October and just seeing really the um, output and innovation and, and true significance and quality of her work that um, continues and, and it really is such a prolific output uh, that it was really just a no-brainer to invite her back to focus on a, a larger area of her work in this show. Was there a, a kind of thread in how you picked the three artists? to be together? Uh, really, we wanted to focus on each artist independently, so it's almost a solo show of each artist, but having said that, aesthetically, we, we wanted to make sure that anything that was in range, in, in gallery view from each other, could you know fit nicely and, and be pleasing to a viewer to transition from one mm. artist's voice to the other, so. Yeah, so you, you, you wanted um, the artists to all have those, sort of a, kind of an individual uh, space and, and their own ideas, but also uh, not so be jarring against each other. Absolutely. Right. So we, we feel the show um, between these three artists becomes a, a very rich experience for a visitor, um, you know, to come through and experience three really distinct, diverse voices as well as techniques. And now, Tricia, the work that's in the show upstairs, uh, which is several different bodies of work, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, had they been shown together like this before, or is this the first time you're able to show them like that. No, they've never been shown together before and I'm actually I'm really delighted in how they they work together because they are three bodies of work but they're interrelated and there is a thread that runs through all of my work that so it's in, it's embedded in each series but it manifests differently and to be able to have a whole series of the mirror paintings in one space and significant amounts from the other two series, you can really see those connections better than say one of each, you know, one representative of each series. Yeah, and you've got the space, like you said, along that one wall to yeah. be able to see all of the mirror ones together and sort of, you can step back, there's room to step back and see everything at once and then yeah. to move over and see the other work as well, right? Yeah, and it really, and it's just, for me, it feels like a really good, true cross-section of my practice to be able to see that much work in the space together. And were there interesting conversations that came about? Were you, were you installing your work at the same time as the other artists in the show? No, they were, they, they were, they they, were those yeah. happened on different days, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Ah, so you didn't get that opportunity. Sometimes those conversations are interesting. You know, you see someone putting something up and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, you know. Right. Uh, well, I, I know we were trying to not uh, be too uh, pedantic about uh, explaining where we are and everything, but I do think we need to give a little bit of a background. Oh, we're going to get there. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> because th we are in this amazing space, uh, and it's the first time I've been here. And um, uh, looking on the website for Pen and Brush, you know, we can see that there's this uh, almost, what, 120-year history practically, right? Or 122-year? Okay. 122-year <laughs> history. Uh, but the, the building that we're in now is only about two years old, it sounds like, right? It says 2014 on the website, at least. Our space, uh, which was completely renovated, uh, was opened in October of 2015. So we've just had our one-year anniversary. The building we're in uh, dates to 1905, I think, or 1906. Mm. So we were able to move from a space that was mid-19th century, 1840s, to another space that had a lot of history and character. And we found a way to use the, the industrial materials of the space to sort of enhance its look and feel. So the brick is original. We put in a steel uh, staircase to connect two floors uh, kept all the beams visible, uh, all those kinds of things to create uh, a visual aesthetic. We softened everything with our flooring, which is end grain wood, easy to stand on for visitors, easy to walk on for us when we're doing our business in the in the galleries, installing and deinstalling. Um, <clears throat> but I I think uh, I think it serves uh, the art that we exhibit and also the other programs that we do here, which include 
workshops and readings, uh, some, some performance in a good way because we have a lot of flexibility uh, in how we use the spaces and uh, that was really important to us coming from a space with a fraction of the exhibition room and also uh, no ability to accommodate people with any disabilities. Here we have an elevator, we, we can do we can do anything. And uh, we've noticed, uh, you know, that we've expanded um, the nature of our visitorship, if that's a word. So <laughs> there really are no obstacles or barriers to people coming into the no, space. No, it's, it's a beautiful open space. And, and of course, we, we should uh, also talk about the history of pen and brush a little bit because it's, it's a pretty rich history. Uh, and it, it, it seems to have been brought up around the whole uh, push for women's right to vote. The, the suffragette movement is a big part of the history. I, th I know it starts about a decade before that, right? But then there's a, there's a real involvement in that. Yeah, slightly more than a decade before. Mm -hmm. um, in the 1890s, I think 1894 was sort of the watershed year uh, where women came together with the purpose, actually, of creating the organization. Uh, and they continued to meet and do the work that they intended to do. But in 1912, which was still eight years before women's suffrage, they actually incorporated the organization. Okay. And we have some photographs that uh, are, they, they bring to mind such a wonderful uh, set of, of brave, uh, really courageous women marching down to the Department of Corporations in their long black dresses and these bustles and hats and everything just to be able to incorporate the organization that they, uh, that they founded and, and clearly wanted to continue. I would say uh, those were the formative years and uh, by 1923 they were well enough established to buy the organization's first permanent home, which was on 10th Street uh, in, in the village. And they were there 90 years, um, wow. which really is extraordinary. And the gift that, uh, that they gave us in modern times was a fully paid off building, <laughs> which, um, which we were able to monetize. And from the proceeds of that sale, we were able to purchase our new space Having studied what was right and what was wrong about the space downtown, we knew exactly what we needed. Uh, and we found it, fortunately, in, um, in 2008. We weren't able to purchase it until 2012. It took three years <laughs> to build it out, uh, which was unbelievably grueling. And, um, and then we opened in 2015, and it, it still... Seems like a miracle. Uh, somebody's watching out for us from, from among those women. So uh, I came to know you through a neighbor of mine, Rebecca Weiss. Was mm -hmm. she part of that PR campaign to establish this building? Or was it after that you got into this building? It, well, it was a little bit of both. We, um, we began our relationship with her and her colleagues uh, right around the time we were selling and purchasing. And then we, we turned to her colleagues, and um, she joined them eventually, to rebrand the organization. It was not only uh, a geographic change, it was also a program change. Uh, and we wanted to reestablish the organization on essentially new ground. The idea was um, that from our experience, we could see that many women were not in fact benefiting from being in traditional juried exhibitions on the visual arts side, nor were they getting everything that they needed to advance their careers from traditional literary contests. Oh yeah, we should not fail to mention that. Uh, Two you, this branches. This is also, right, an organ a literary organization. As well, yes, from the beginning. So we thought about how we could make changes that would give women the kind of exposure their work really deserved. We were really interested in thinking about this in terms of making changes in the way women got their work to the marketplace so that ultimately the value of that work uh, could reach a more realistic basis, not be discounted automatically because it was made by a female. And that shaped our thinking. Um, I will say that we used our time waiting for the construction to be completed to really flesh out a program that 
I will say I think is well thought out. And uh, I think attracting uh, visual artists like Tricia is a great uh, example of how the program can work to be attractive to women who, by all rights, uh, are stars and should be recognized and because of problems in the marketplace simply are not. So, um, and we're, we're seeing that with, uh, with writers now also. We'll be uh, publishing our first real novel uh, next oh, wow. year. Um, I, we, saw, I saw on your site you have a, um, a new venture in e-publishing as well. Yes, um, that's right. Uh, we got uh, our own imprint. We are so far restricting our publications to e-books. It has to be a, a reasonable start <laughs> <laughs> and something that we can sustain while we're building the program. Yeah. But uh, I, I think our, our four mothers uh, would be pleased at what we've been able to do with their legacy. They were, uh, they were spectacular women. Um, our longest serving president, uh, whose tenure will never be equaled, was Ida Tarbell, who, who served in that capacity as president for 30 years. Mm. And I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> um, but um, she did provide great stability for the organization, and because of her own fame and popularity, the organization's activities received a lot of coverage in the local papers of the day, many of which do not exist sure. uh, anymore. <laughs> um, those are archived uh, in the Archives of American Art, which is uh, part of the Smithsonian, and there's a local office almost down the street from us on um, Park Avenue here in Manhattan, uh, where anyone interested can pull those microfilm files and, and have a look. Uh, it's actually a lot of fun uh, to see what was going on back then. Heyday, I, I suspect, probably in the 20s and 30s, um, maybe up to the war. And our organization, like many others that are 100 years uh, or more, had to make some serious adjustments after the war. Uh, some did it uh, more successfully than others. I mean, I would argue we're still here, so right. we did something right. Yeah, question that I have probably for all three of you is, um, and you mentioned the marketplace, but which is, you know, in the art world, which is this thing that is commonly taken up with this idea of a marketplace. But um, all three of you have worked with various foundations over at different times, right, including the one that we're here at. And do you want to talk about foundations as an alternative to the marketplace? I mean, this isn't a Chelsea gallery. It's not a commercial gallery space. It's, it's at, you know, you're, the foundations have different missions and different ways of uh, advocating for, you know, the, the ideas of the founders or they want to bring in. And that becomes an alternative to um, something like a, a commercial gallery or the, even, even now everyone has to admit that the museum world is really the collection of the people who are on the board of trustees of those museums, right? It's, that's, that's the work that they're buying and that's the work that they're showing. So how do you think foundations can, can react as a, an alternative to that world? I think actually this, this crosses over into a, a question I was thinking about while you were all speaking in, uh, for Tricia in, in terms of did this actually? Did you actually find this to be a, a an opportunity in a way that you weren't finding in other places? I did. And that's actually what I was, you know, hoping I'd get a chance to say. You know, the the commercial art world, the art market, loves bad boys and old ladies. You know, <laughs> and that big middle stretch, or if you fall outside of that model, it's actually very hard to to kind of get in. And um, what this organization offered was a way to have my work shown to you know, independent curators so there's a neutrality to the way this organization works, which is really, really wonderful. But it also was a way for artists like myself who don't fit the model to still have access to, you know, or their work have access to, to curators. So in, in terms of the sort of history of Pen and & Brush and, and this new model and how it came to be, um, it's interesting how you bring up, you know, that, that is our exact pressure point of um, how artists get through in the commercial market, what's left for everyone else. We came out of the juried model that um, Janice had mentioned earlier, which is really um, an outdated 
but open access way for for artists to start building their resumes, right? Um, But Janice and I had experienced many, many years um, and Janice decades of meeting extremely talented artists whose resume did not only start out with juried shows, but continued for 10 years of their production out of master's degrees with only getting juried shows and right. only getting jur- Still part of these emerging artists uh, jury Collectives shows. Right, and right. Jur- exactly, and not really being able to penetrate. So uh, when we were doing that research during the construction time and, and even prior to that, um, you know, when Janice came onto the organization, her really extraordinary vision was to honor the founding women who were two artists that came together because they were frustrated trying to forge their way in New York City as artists, writers, performers, being denied access to, you know, art clubs of the time because of their gender. And they decided, you know, we we know a lot of talented women. We're just going to come together and make our own way in this city, you know, it, which is really that starting spark. And, you know, certainly through 122 years, depending on who was, you know, in control or at the helm, um, a flux of relevancy or not can be argued. But as Janice said, the perseverance of 122 years, regardless, (laughs) speaks for itself. So um, really, you know, when, when I joined alongside Janice and saw her vision for that original spark of women coming together to open a door of access in New York City. And we began to think uh, really strategically about what does that mean for an artist or a writer in the 21st century? And how do we create a model that strategically tries to mimic the gallery system and not operate separate and apart as a co-op, but actually really connect to that larger art world, which is why we do find it very important to have outside curators vetting the work who are working, running commercial galleries in our major institutions, auction houses, and as scholars to vet the work so it, it's neutral from us as the advocates at the foundation, you know, saying the work is good. To have them vet it also opens a pathway to that influential art community, which is really strategic in what we hope we're building oh, yeah. here. Um, you know, when when curators speak with us about signing on to review, you know, we make it clear that if you find an artist that you are so excited about, you want to take them on in your own gallery or institution and skip having a show here, that is fine with us. Even better, our ultimate goal would be to grow artists sort of out of our program and become a resource for the commercial market through this system That's so right. that it's a it's an open door access for them to find new exciting work of, you know, emerging to mid-career under-recognized artists of every generation, uh, you know, to get moving forward and then we get the next bunch in that needs exposure. So yeah, that's a that's that's a really interesting take because it's it's not um, a rejection of what's going on and burning the bridges and saying uh, we're going to do something different. And so there, you're you're actually offering giving them the you're giving the the gallery world an opportunity to see people in a different path to to you know see people in a different way, which is great. And could I just I would make a point too? Um, you know, we know that there are successful women artists. And so there is, there is the gender issue, but I think one of the things that's so exciting for me about this foundation is that it's the model, going back to the model, it's because it's not always just the gender, it's the lives women lead. And that makes it very difficult to be part of the kind of commercial sort of route. You don't fit the model of the young artist. You, you've had, in my case, you know, 20 years of being deeply immersed in the domestic world, raising a family. So unable to pursue the things that the the artistic model demands from you, that you network, that you have residency programs, that you build up these social connections early on and, and then consistently. That is a model that I wasn't able to have and bring to to my sort of promoting my work and building my career. So this that is a really exciting aspect. And I'm going to sort of build on both of these comments because I think while there certainly are a lot of challenges for not-for-profit organizations, there is also a freedom. Uh, And certainly it's a freedom from um, chasing a profit motive. Our concern is to do the best we can for women in the arts and literature. Uh, Our concern is not to make money. 
uh, or to advance our own views. And that's very liberating. Uh, it, it really allows us to do a constant temperature taking of what's going on in the community. We are not in competition at any level, uh, whether it's curatorial or institutional or gallery-based. Uh, those issues really don't come into play for us. We have one objective, as I've said, and that is to see that we can make the point, however directly or subversively we need to make it, that there's a great deal of really fine work out there. It's done by women. They are prepared uh, to take a career in the arts or in literature seriously. They understand there's a business aspect to it. We help fill in if we need to do that, if there's a gap someplace. But the idea is to present them in a way that makes them really attractive to other folks who are looking for a way to move somebody through the system in the marketplace, and there's plenty of room to do that. Don's point is absolutely on the mark, uh, and you know when she was talking about the fact that we're really, I think, uniquely positioned to help women by giving them exposure to those who are influencers, either in the literary world or in the visual arts world, and then do everything we can to push them out of the nest and let them, let them prosper uh, as they make their way up through, uh, you know, in, into the levels of success that they really deserve. Building on what uh, Trisha was just saying, uh, I was at an opening last night in Chelsea for um, a photographer that we both know, Thomas Roma, and uh, a photographer who we're good friends with, Tanith Berkeley. Uh, she was there, and she had her, my God, I don't know how old her son Owen is, but young enough that she's carrying him around on her hip during the whole opening, and he's, you know, making conversations with people as she goes around. And... Uh, she asked me if I was going to a talk that's at Pratt next Wednesday uh, by the photographer Justine Kurland, which I was planning on going to. And But one of the things she said was, I'm trying to get Eileen, another photographer we know, I'm trying to get her to go because uh, we're expecting Justine to be talking a little bit about you know, what it's like to be a mother and mother making work and, you know, going, you know, how does that influence their fo their photographs or how does it influence, you know, what they're able to do and road trips and things like that. So, you know, so she's telling me this while holding her, you know, young son on her hip and walking around. And uh, there is something to that is, is how to, is finding a community and then finding other people who have maybe found a way to, you know, uh, make a model to have things work and to incorporate all these things in their life and still chip away and keep making work, not giving up, not stopping work, right? Well, no, in my case, I did stop for seven years. Mm. Um, so there's a big chunk of time. And then to, to pick up again was slow. And I, I mean, it's making me smile when you were describing, you know, holding the baby because that's actually the, the easiest part. Mm. <laughs> and then another child, you know, it's exponentially bigger. And the time, people, there is, I think, always this idea that it's about just the baby when the, during the baby phase. But it's, it's much more than that. And it takes a huge amount of your time if you're the, the primary caregiver. And so in my case, I couldn't afford childcare. So it really wasn't an option. I would have had to work full time in a job to pay the yeah, for the childcare. So the art world, was right? out <laughs> of the equation anyway. Yeah. So I made a decision really just to stop because it was tormenting me trying to, to carry on. Mm. So I stopped and then picked up later. But it it comes down to time really, how much time you have because you 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 lose a lot of time and then the you you kind of have to pick up again very slowly that takes a lot of time and if you're at home with a family you can't actually physically be in these places like you were just talking about it's a challenge and it, 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 it sort of stretches the career out over a much much longer period than you wouldn't than it normally than it should have really has the bulk of your work been made here in the united states when you were talking about raising a, mm. your children and all, where, where were you that doing that? Here. That was here. Most of it was here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I moved to the country when the children were two and four. 
So I'd had a career in England before them. <laughs> BC before That's children, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, a different kind of work, but it, it's so it's been in two phases, and then of course. There's a sea change that happens when you have children. You know, in that seven-year period, a great sort of germination happened under, you know, sort of underground. So the work came out quite differently. I saw the work differently. I felt differently. My, my life experience was different. So it really is a whole other chapter then. So why don't we talk a little bit about the work that's in the show? And, mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll link to your website, trishawright.com. Yes. Yes. And so people will be able to see it. And we'll take some installation photos, if that's okay, before we leave and, and post those with the episode as well. Of and course. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about some of the work that's in the show right now. Well, actually, it really, it's a continuation of what I was just saying. I fought the domestic once I got, kind of picked up my studio life again, I fought it really hard. I had a studio in an industrial building, very unlike the domestic space, and, and I really, really tried to keep those two worlds apart. Over time, the two worlds really came together, and now it, the, the materials of the home are in the, the paintings, in the works, that they really became spliced together, and it, and it feels and has felt for a long time that that's the right way to make art. It represents my own experience and my bigger interest in the domestic space. And you could say the right way, W-R-I-T-H-T. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the domestic space as the home, which, which is my own personal experience, but also in a, in a broader sense. It's the where we all live. It's where our biggest and most sort of dramatic emotional scenes are played out. People die, people are born, you do your grieving, you suffer loss. All of those things happen within the homes. So I've been fascinated by the home as this kind of um, place of power, a powerhouse of influence and experience. And so I use the materials of the home. I use, reference wallpapers a lot as a sort of silent repositories of information and history. So the works in the exhibition are taken from three interrelated series. So they, they the ideas manifest themselves in different ways, but they all connect on some level to thinking about the domestic space and the home. Yeah, I know from the True Value series, yeah. you're pulling in stuff that is literally from the hardware store that people go to exactly fix their home or yeah. get the things that they need to make yeah. you know you've got stoppers from the rubber stoppers for the kitchen sink or bathroom mm -hmm. sink depending on how it, and uh so but and then bringing that in with those uh i forget what the name of the technique where you're pushing the pins in from the back of the paper right to make those patterns which also reference you've got some stuff with doilies i remember on shelves and some other work right. and uh and wallpaper and decorative design and how that feeds back into the domestic space and the right. potential. Everyone knows there's dramatic potential in the home space. Like there's certain things that'll happen in a kitchen that may not happen anywhere else. Same with a bedroom, same mm. with anywhere else, right? There's yeah. like, when when things go wrong or things go great, you know, there's drama in mm. those places, right? Yeah, in the True Value series was an attempt to, to equalize different ideas about work, work in the home, as opposed to work outside. So using hardware associated with sort of plumbing and engineering and things like that, with materials associated with the home, which are often seen as trivial. I mean, the, the materials I was using are things like referencing doilies and lace and sort of women's work or things that have no cultural value and sort of bringing them together to create these kind of hybrids of work. And the, one of the biggest drives in the work is to is to elevate the domestic space, um, which I think of as a place of dignity and value, and to celebrate that, sort of to raise it up. So that a lot of times the work is referencing um, formalist sort of art conventions and sort of bringing the materials off the home, trivial, throw away, or considered that way at least, into the space of sort of high formalism, which is a sort of revered art historical space. And sort of, again, sort of splicing these two worlds together. 
And since we are on the photoshow.org, maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about the role of photography in your work specifically in the, in the I forgot the exact title, the Mirror series, which I just forgot the exact title of. So. Yeah, there's a, there are a few series that I think there do are. involve photographic yeah. ideas. Yeah. 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 And they reference photography in different ways. I, I started incorporating photography into the work um, in the series called Anaglypta Dreams, and the dreams being a reference to the fact that it's a photograph, not an actual thing. Anaglypta, incidentally, is um, an embossed wallpaper developed in England in the 19th century, and it's, it's, it's this kind of wallpapers that were in the homes that I knew growing up and are still all over Ireland and England, which is sort of my background. So I started using photography photographing my own three-dimensional work as a way to bring in atmosphere and a narrative element. When, um, when my three-dimensional work is in a space, quite often I, I could see that the response was one of bemusement or puzzlement, these sort of disparate, odd objects on a shelf. In photographing them and representing them as two-dimensional pieces, um, really enabled people to recognize them as an artwork. It was the most bizarre response. It was an unexpected response, actually. So you were, you were thinking more atmospheric, and then you realized there was a whole recontextualization of how people were perceiving Absolutely. the piece as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I do not consider myself a woman photographer or a photographer. <laughs> I use photography as a tool. I'm really... The work comes out of a is made in a painting context, and I use a lot of three-dimensional objects within the context of a canvas, a shelf with an object on that shelf in within the frame of a canvas. So my main interest is to, is to present the object as image. So photographing my own three-dimensional work kind of completed that, brought the, the circle full to its fullest conclusion by returning it back to an image, a flat image on the wall. Yeah, I think, I think what happens when, when people are seeing the actual piece, they're thinking about, in, in practical terms, the utility of it, the mm. tactility of it. And, every, and, and, all, yes. and, and then they're only focusing on the object and not the whole kind of scene you've created. Yes. And then by, re, by photographing it, then they, they can't help but imagine the whole scene and start filling in the, the blanks and things like that. Yes, so it, was, it opens it up. It was so interesting to see that happening. And I mean, I photographed the objects on an, um, an anaglypta wallpaper background so that it's to create the feeling, to my mind, that it was um, a, a detail from a room. You're glimpsing into a, a portion of a room. And that, that fiction... It, it was bizarre, really, because a, f a photograph is an actual record of something real, and yet it created a fiction of something that, that in real terms, people were, had a hard time sort of seeing the fiction or the, the, the sort of metaphor or whatever in the actual objects, and it was only when then, but by photographing the same thing that they could see right. that step. Was, and, was and that's in part your own fault, because you were making very well-made objects. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> And then in the, um, the series of paintings you mm. were just showing us upstairs where you have these airbrushed centers and, and framed in, in uh, a more painterly method, right? Uh, you, you were actually talking about the use of time and time-based ideas, in the, in that one, at least in that one painting we were talking about, right. which, that, which is a kind of a diptych or even a, like a, a stereographic image almost. Almost. I mean, the, the, the series all takes a, a Baroque frame and then that, the sort of the ornamental aspect of the frame, the three-dimensional aspect has been flattened and painted in a, sort of, in a schematic way. And then the interior of the frame, which is a mirror, is reflecting insubstantial objects or insubstantial things, uh, shadows of leaves, shadows of objects in the home, patches of light, all transient, insubstantial things. So, and those are painted in a realistic way, as though they are actually present. So there's a reversal, a paradox there between the thing that should be solid is painted as though it's flat and schematic and just an outline, and the thing that has no form is painted as though it's real. So there's an, there's an element of time embedded in all of these paintings because they are all depictions of something that's very fleeting. So there's that idea in a way of capturing the way that a photograph does. 
the diptych one that you're saying shows two mirrors, mirror frames. It's actually based on a hinged, you know, like the kind of um, frame where you'd sure. have a mother and a father <laughs> in a photograph or something. And the same image in each, but with very, very slight differences to, to convey that sense of a, a very tiny moment passing in time. Yeah, you, you were telling me this great story about how because you were painting them simultaneously, mm. somewhat simultaneously, that, that whatever you had done in one, you had to make sure you either recreated in the other or you used it as an element of time passing. That's in the right. Other, if, right. If I made a mistake on the one on the left, I had to make the same mistake on the one on the right and then fix the mistake on the left and then fix mm -hmm. the one on the right because you could see all of the history. Cause it, because I, I'm using an airbrush to paint the, the, the shadows. And again, it comes back to, well, that relates to my use of photography. It's a way of creating an image without using the hand. I'm not interested in photorealist sort of devices or strategies, but I also want to render something or show something how it actually looks in, in the real world. So photography, for me, is a way of, um, it's a stand-in for the found object, for example, or using an airbrush is a way of kind of capturing the, the appearance of something, but without using sort of photorealist techniques. Yeah, you're also revisiting some of the early conversations about photography and its separation from painting in terms of the, you know, the invention of the, the Leica where all of a sudden people were able, or even actually the Kodak even before that in the 1880s, where people were able to create more fleeting moment imagery yeah. for the first time because it wasn't these, these big slow cameras and mm. things like that. Um, and then there's the, the idea of the debate about art in terms of mechanical reproduction, right? And then, mm. so if it's not by the artist's hand, whether or not it was art, and so... Yes, and, and I have very strong feelings about that. <laughs> a lot of my work is very clean, when I, and when I was making paintings purely with a brush, and often I'm asked, you know, is this a silk screen? <laughs> because, it, because it doesn't have any evidence of the hand, mm. and I personally feel that if it's not doing a job if there's if it's not actually conveying a specific idea that there's no there's no need for it to be there it's um i i reduce I, it's a process of elimination and i take as much out as i could possibly take out in and the and the piece still work there are associations going back to the hand that if you if you see the hand and if you have a gesture and impasto and a lot of kind of mark visible action on the surface that somehow it's more authentic that it's more human and that the opposite of, of sort of a graphic line or a graphic surface is somehow cold and sterile it's a very bizarre way to to read paintings or images to my mind so I'm I'm interested in image and make in, in ways to depict objects and images and have objects real ones in the world and it's to all be sort of considered part of painting. Uh, Janice and Don, maybe uh, we could talk to you a little bit about, uh, well, obviously a lot of our listeners are going to be photographers, and um, what uh, is their plans, or do you, uh, you guys are showing photography, I would assume, right? And so uh, if you're a woman photographer, and you're, you're interested in, you know, getting in front of the curators and the people that you bring in to advocate for people, uh, what's the path for becoming part of the pen and brush family, as it were? So it's an open submission all year round, no deadlines. Uh, you know, we that, that was another part of our strategy, make it fluid, open. Um, you know, when an artist who has been working at their voice for years or is in school or just out of school finds out about us, we are ready to roll. We constantly have... Um, a diverse set of at least five individual curators logging in and reviewing the submission pool at any given time. Um, and, and we do try to make it very diverse in terms of those curators' background and point of view. So, so that there, again, as Janice was saying, there's no institutional perspective being shaped here. It's tapping into, you know, all areas and points of view of influencers in the field and trying to match them up with artists that they are really excited about the merits of their work and, you know, just they haven't 
had the opportunity to have that open door of access to each other. So, um, yeah, an artist who finds out about us, a photographer from anywhere in the world, can go on to our website, penandbrush.org. They can read about our program, uh, how to submit. It's a relatively easy submission process. It's an entire portfolio. You can submit a minimum of six works, a maximum of 12 works, along with your CV, your artist statement. And it's the process is about 15 minutes long. We internally just give it an objective review uh, to make sure the work is on par, professional, it's shot professionally, everything, you know, hits the mark. Um, we do mentor younger artists who maybe have never submitted a full portfolio or had that experience through the process as much as we can. Um, the submission is a $60 application fee, which is basically $10 a month for us to keep the portfolio live and getting curators engaged. It just helps cover some of our admin fees. Um, but after that, once you're selected, it's really up to the curator's vision whether they want to include you in a theme show, a group show, a solo show, however they envision it, we support them in that. And once they are, are vetted by the curators, they sort of stay on our roster for a year and we stay in touch and dialogue with them about new work and opportunities through us. So hmm. that's great. Yeah. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about that idea? You said there's this like a six month window of. There is a six month review period uh, when you submit work. Uh, and it's it's really just to uh, keep the cycle fresh, the cycle fresh of both the art that's in there as well as the curators who are reviewing so that both pools are constantly evolving so that um, there's more of a chance of a curator finding new work that that they're excited about. But having said that, we, we have had time periods where we have really exciting work in there and we have new curators cycling in, so we just for free automatically extend the portfolios to to keep really good work in there to, to give it as much as of a shot as, as we can to new curators. And once an artist uh, who is in our pool is selected by a curator, there are no other fees whatsoever incurred uh, from them outside of that $60 application fee. So we carry out the full exhibition of the work and we also publish a catalog, which we feel is really important to our work um, that the curator write about why they selected the work and the merit of the work, uh, you know, so that we can form that baseline level of scholarship and recognition into the field and and even sometimes the canon if the work warrants it. So so that beyond the exhibit with us, they actually have a tool of something that's established from that curator from our institution that is is really taking their work to the the next step and they can use that tool and you know go out there beyond us with it so oh that's fantastic um, on the photography side, I will also say that we are in talks with a few uh, photography-focused institutions to really work on some partnerships and uh, work on getting more photography-focused curators reviewing work because we, we really are interested in um, the medium, of course, and, and gaining exposure to contemporary fine art photographers. Great. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is another aspect. I'm um, going back to photography. Mm. I'm very interested in these sort of polarities and hybrids and bringing together different kinds of spaces and styles and techniques. Um, I think it relates to how I feel about um, the sort of male, masculine, feminine in myself and how women are perceived as being separate and other and, and the, all those sorts of ideas. Really, it's it's been embedded in the work for many years. Is this feeling of, of these polarities and paradoxes so I'm about I'm just at the beginning of a new series that will combine photography and painting but on the same surface this is a technically difficult <laughs> I don't know if it'll work but I'm really interested in that idea of having the painted element and the photographed element and again the photograph being a stand-in for the found object this is like a three-dimensional object because it is the, the object captured, set into an imaginary space in a sense that I'll be painting onto it and around it and sort of almost within it. It's, mm. So that's a very interesting uh, new development, really bringing the two together in the same space. Uh, will, this, will there still be themes of domesticity or, or what's the other, other concepts that you're yes, thinking about? Yes, um, it actually takes its 
beginning from looking at um, medieval tapestries in Paris. Mm. <laughs> um, it's the lady and the unicorn. Mm. It, they're unbelievable tapestries, but I've been interested in the mille fleur sort of motif for many, many years, and it's a way to incorporate that. One of the things that's so interesting about the lady with the and the unicorn is that it's a domesticated space, a world. You know, the unicorn is this kind of mythic wild beast and it's set within this stage, almost an arena within the tapestry. There's two different spaces in the tapestry. And it, like, it's like the cloistered world, the, the mm. interior world and the domesticated space. So that, that's the sort of the, the root of it. Mm -hmm. And then there are other objects I'm still working on how to to incorporate right. other aspects. And of course, the unicorn has those other connotations of uh, the feminine and the and the fantasy and and all the the, the mythological and the, the stories that little girls are told and things like that. There won't be any unicorns in the work okay. that I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to make this clear: there are no unicorns. It's the space. <laughs> it's the space in which the ac all the action happens that really interested me. It's a similar, actually, aesthetically very different to Francis Bacon's sort of arena you mm -hmm. have this this bizarre space within a room where the sort of the action happens this is a sort of domestic courtly version of that and I like that because it's the, it is the domesticated world brought down to a different different kind of scale and it reflects our actual lives how we live mm. you, know, you know great I did have a question if you want to speak about the other because I got a, a real sense from reading the website and hearing you speak earlier that the that you're really advocating for the artists that you that you come into um, contact with, and that there's mentorship, which I think is something that even uh, like on the commercial gallery side is that's not the purpose. There's not mentorship, right? Uh, do you have like um, and you talked about working earlier with younger artists? Do you have uh, like professional practice type? Uh, do you do anything like that, like bring in people to talk to artists about how they should be creating their, like even photographing their work or making their portfolios or? Uh, we do not. We do find a lot of um, other artist-driven organizations do kind of cover that um, yeah. landscape pretty well along with NIFA. Um, of course, yeah. But, you know, we do do it uh, in as it's ingrained throughout our process um, when we encounter an artist, um, you know, whether it be talking to them about first submitting a work, that submission process, or even once they're selected by a curator, we have had an experience where it was an artist first show out of her MFA program. And, you know, it, everything was brand new to her. You know, she, she didn't have that long resume of juried experience or, or anything to really go on in terms of um, appropriately pricing her work mm -hmm. and things of that nature. So uh, it's, it's really uh, uh, all hands on deck as we're working with our artists that come, come into our folds through submission process and anything that happens, we're certainly game to walk them through and advise them and help sharpen their skills in any way we can, whether they end up being selected and showing with us, or it just, even even if they don't, it helps prepare them better for when they do try to walk into those commercial galleries or submit something. It, it helps sharpen them a mm -hmm. bit because, as you say, that's that's not at all part of the commercial model, and they really have little patience for <laughs> for someone who, who doesn't know better but may be extremely talented. So uh, mm -hmm. really, it's just through our process. We mentor any way we can. Excellent. And uh, Trisha, you found this, I assume, very rewarding being part, being part of this, what Pen & Brush is doing. Have you found, are you encouraging other uh, artists that you know to submit and get involved? Or I, Yeah, I have found it really very rewarding. And yes, I have definitely <laughs> encouraged other artists and do so, because mm -hmm. I think it's a wonderful organization. And it's a, um, it's a fantastic space as well to be able to, you know, it, it have you, you didn't talk about the different aesthetic so much from the move from the old building to this building. I didn't see the old building, but this, you know, this, the contemporary aesthetic here, it's, it's kind of a really suitable kind of environment for, to reflect what women, you know, contemporary women artists are doing now. That's exactly what I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, I, th I think that there is a danger in any kind of uh, 
And it sounds like from what I can tell structurally, you guys have put in place things to avoid a lot of these pitfalls of having it be too insular and, you know, having it be, uh, like, a you know, a clubhouse where everyone comes together and pats each other on the back. Right. It's that you're trying to make something that it's, it is a professional space. It's, you know, it's, when you walk, when you approach the building, it's obvious that it's being taken seriously, right? And then you walk in and everything's done to that degree as opposed to, you know, I have a lot more experience with camera clubs all across this country or all across the world. And and uh, I was living in Asheville, North Carolina for a while. And uh, when I was there, I was part of this F, I think they called themselves F64 group or something. It was like a group of photographers that would get together in various places. But there was a little bit of, not desperation, but there was something about the way that it was organized that you, that between just patting each other on the back that no one was, they, they weren't trying to push each other. You know what I mean? They weren't trying to take things to the next level. And so everyone was very congratulatory. And, you know, I don't think anyone was trying to to move forward or, or, or go beyond just being part of their small little community. And uh, from what you're describing about bringing outside curators, having this you know amazing professional space, that you're you're trying to really uh, create an environment where all of these different ideas can come in and grow and you know go out into the world and you know conquer everything, right? That would be wonderful. Uh, I I think you're right in your characterization of it. It's tricky, particularly because we are not for profit organization, to not appear so wealthy that we don't need outside help. Oh, yeah. Um, we do. Uh, we are supported publicly by tax-deductible donations and contributions. But the need to have a space which reflects a contemporary view and is professional in its feel, to our mind, is critical. Absolutely critical. If we can't demonstrate through our surroundings, how seriously we take the work we're exhibiting, uh, we have a problem on our hands. Uh, we, we also have done a lot, I think, to create spaces within spaces. Uh, this is interesting because it follows uh, many of Trisha's comments about her own work. Um, the space that we're in right now is really different in its feel and aesthetic from our main gallery space upstairs. It's more intimate, it's friendlier, it's warmer, actually literally uh, warmer uh, than the upstairs. Uh, but it serves a very specific purpose. It allows us to do two really important things. One, to show work uh, that is better seen if people can get up close to it and not feel that they're in a kind of cavernous space that is always going to separate them from what they're looking at. The second thing uh, that it allows us to do is to provide an area where people feel comfortable parking themselves, uh, whether it's during the activity or just as they come through and experience the space, and it's clear that nobody's going to say, oh, you can't sit there. Oh, you can't read that book. You can't. I mean, it's exactly the opposite of that. It's come in, find a spot, settle in, be comfortable, stay with us. And I'm going to say, perhaps controversially, that I think that is particularly important for women. Hmm. Many have said to me over the years that I've been with the organization, which is now approaching 20, uh, that having a place that is stable and safe and concrete is critical for them. Mm. It's really important to them. Uh, it certainly is for women who are shipping work to us and have never been here uh, to know that we have an enormous history uh, behind us and this is not a storefront that that may not exist in a year or two. And uh, if, if they want to feel that there is an opportunity for them to be part of an organization, I might even say a movement, uh, that's going to be around uh, to, to work with them, has, has been around long enough to work with their predecessors and will be around long enough to work with their successors, 
I think we say that. And, and I think we say that in the way that we have actually constructed the space, mm-hmm. that it is solid, it's not going anywhere, we're not going anywhere. Um, and that notion of stability and everything that it implies uh, makes a big difference. And I, I will say that I think it separates us from many other organizations on the not-for-profit side, and I think it really separates us from the commercial spaces that are around. So for our listeners, uh, this downstairs space um, has, as you said, even though we're, you go down that metal staircase, and there's, but there's this wonderful skylight above, and the natural light comes down, and then at the bottom of the staircase is this sort of cushioned plateau where you've got all the books out. So it is this welcoming space to come in. And when you were talking about uh, it being particularly important for women to feel like there's a place they could come and, you know, that it's a permanent place, um, you know, I teach at Columbia University, and I would say in my photography classes, a good majority, uh, at least half, if not the majority of my students are often uh, from Barnard College, which is, of course, um, uh, now part, you know, it's part of Columbia. And they can take all the classes at Columbia. They, they have free access to go everywhere, yet they also have, you know, Barnard College, and it's there, you know, for, and it's this great environment for them. And um, we often advocate for people that come to, you know, we have high school people come and say, you know, you know sh- why should I choose, you know, Columbia College or for Barnard? You know, is, am I, am I going to be giving something up? And very often we advocate for going to Barnard. It's incredible. You've, not only do you get, all the benefits of being at the university, but then you've got this other space. The, there's different conversations you're going to have because it's it's not about this competition and other things going on. It's just this incredible environment. So that made when you said that earlier about what you guys are trying to create here, I immediately thought about that and it resonated and on that level. Your your point uh, I think speaks to what we hear from women, but I want to add a uh, kind of a codicil to that, uh, which is that. We understand that in order for women to succeed in the visual arts and the literary arts, they have to compete uh, in the real world. Um, And so we curators are men and women both, and our objective of giving women the tools they need to go out and be competitive in the world, uh, I think, speak to the fact that our program is not an affirmative action program. And what I mean by that is that their work needs to show its merit. What we're doing is creating an environment where it's the merit that is that is the important thing. It's the merit that's what's looked at. It's not their gender. We're most happy when people come into the gallery when there's an exhibition on and they they stay, they look at the work, they get involved in the work, and it's only after they've been here 15, 20 minutes doing that that they may ask one of us in the gallery for a price list or to find out more. And it sort of dawns on them at that point and for the first time that everything they're seeing is done by women. That's a great outcome for us because they've already made that connection to the work and they've been able to do it without the overlay of gender. So, as we say, until it's just about the art. I think that's a, a good note to end on. Thank you all very much. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.